Let's pray. Lord, we are here to worship you. I pray that our service, our worship of you, our love for you, our study of your word, I pray that it would all be pleasing to you and that you would help us truly to have a better understanding who our Savior is. And through that understanding, have a greater love for him. Jesus, we do love you. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's nothing like, like a scandal to capture the news headlines. And whether it's a sports hero or a Hollywood actor or a politician or, or sadly even, well, well-known religious leaders, there seems to be no shortage of scandals in our nation. But what if, what if what people thought was a scandal really turned out to be something good? What if a scandal wasn't a scandal? but it was something that was just misinterpreted. No, no, I'm not saying that that's true of any of the scandals that we might see on the nightly news. Uh, I think usually those scandals are there for reasons because someone did something bad. But what if a scandal really wasn't a scandal? The reason I ask that is because that is exactly what happened to Jesus. Uh, Last week we talked about how audacious he was, because if you remember right, there was a leper who came up to Jesus, and Jesus did the unthinkable. He reached out and he touched that leper when he was healing him. And then Jesus did something else that was audacious, because then a paralytic, when he was lowered down there to Jesus in the house, Jesus didn't just heal him physically. Jesus declared the man's sins to be forgiven. Well, that could only be done by God, and of course, that's exactly why Jesus did it, because he is God. But what Jesus did next, though, at least what we see here in the book of Mark, well, <laughs> it goes far beyond scandal, or audacious, excuse me. It is undoubtedly downright scandalous. If, this, if last week the things we saw were kind of like jaw-dropping, this would have been I think I'm passing out, falling on the ground, because this is just so incredible, so unthinkable. But yet, the scandal was not a scandal. In fact, two of the most amazing, incredible things we see in our Savior here. So I really have two points, two things I want us to look at here today. First of all is a scandalous calling and meal. Hopefully you're with me, Mark chapter 2. Let me read verses 13 and 14 and have you follow along. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Wait, back the scandal truck up a minute here. What's wrong with anything that we just read in those verses? It doesn't seem like a big deal. If you remember right, a few weeks ago, we saw how Jesus in chapter 1, how he called Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him. 
and they did that. So now here we read that Levi is also called to follow him. By the way, you probably already know this, but Levi, uh, it, we know him better by his other name, Matthew. So in case you're wondering, we're just going to, I'll try to use Levi since that's what Mark does, no guarantees. If I say Matthew, you're with me, right? Okay, good. Thank you. So, so now he, he calls Levi here to follow him, just as he had called the other four disciples earlier. So this just doesn't seem like a very big deal to us. <laughs> but that's because we don't understand the first century mindset. Because in the first century, this was a big, a big deal. In fact, this was a very big deal. So... First of all, I was understanding the culture. So we have the first clue here in in verse 14 of what we had just read, where it says that Levi was sitting at the tax booth. But the next few verses, they they shine the spotlight now directly upon Jesus' supposedly scandalous actions. Let's read verses 15 and 16. Follow along as I do that, please. And as he reclined at table in his house... Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, recently, the head of a large medical research department declared that they had started using lawyers now as test subjects. And so when he was asked about that, he, he said, well, there are really three reasons that we decided to, to start using lawyers. He said, number one, there are more lawyers now than there are white mice. Number two, he said, lawyers are slightly more humanoid than white than white rats, excuse me, rats. That sounds so much worse. And he says, number three, there are some things that even a white rat won't do. <laughs> really, that's all you're going to give me for that one. <laughs> now, my apologies to anyone who may have <laughs> tied in with lawyers, or if you know someone who's a lawyer, my apologies. But the reason I say it is because lawyers, especially the ambulance chasers, they're not really highly esteemed in our society because they seem to, there seems to be so many of them and it, they just seem, again, often to try to be getting the money that we've worked so hard for so that they can have that. So we don't think of them as necessarily super high on the, the list of uh, the elite in society. The reason I, I tell you that, which was an extremely funny joke that sadly many of you didn't laugh at, <laughs> but the, the reason I tell you that is because whether you think of lawyers respectably or whether you think of them as just lowlifes, nothing negative you can think about them or anyone else in our society even begins to compare with the disdain that the first century Jews had for tax collectors. They were hated by everyone. I guarantee you, no one ever stood up in, in, in school on career day and said, yes, I, when I grow up, I want to be a tax collector. No one said that. No one, because they were so hated. Now, the taxation system, it was incredibly profitable, so that's why some would do it, but it was extremely corrupt. 
The way it worked is a person would actually bid on the job, and if they were awarded that position by the Roman uh, government, then they had the, the full protection of Roman soldiers as they were collecting the taxes. Because they were so well protected, they gave in to human greed, and they would collect then just not not only the taxes that were required from people, but they would inflate them. They would skim off the top because they could take all the extra for themselves. And so you, as a tax collector, that's exactly what they would do. Instead of charging you what the government said you owed, they would charge you considerably more. You had no recourse. You had There was no way that you could complain or appeal the decision. They had Roman soldiers protecting them. So while being a tax collector was lucrative, it was the most despised profession in all of Israel. They were considered traitors and Roman collaborators. In fact, this is what the Pillar New Testament commentary writes. It says, a Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or witness in court. Okay, that's one thing. Couldn't even testify. This next one is even more. It says they were expelled from the synagogue. That means they could not even worship with the other Jewish people. goes on, he says, they were a cause of disgrace for their family. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. In other words, cannot be entered by anyone. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors since revenue from taxes was deemed robbery. So you still have doubts about what I'm saying, that it was a despised profession? Well, think about this with me. (laughs) If you are a liar, a cheat, a thief, an adulterer, even a prostitute or a murderer, you were classified as a sinner. Justifiably so, right? Those were all sinful things. Everyone fit under the classification of a sinner. Well, almost everyone. Look at the text again, verse 15. Many tax collectors and sinners. Verse 16, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. (laughs) This, This is amazing to me because here's the thing. Tax collectors were considered to be so bad, so vile, so evil, that they weren't even good enough to be called sinners. That's pretty bad, right? I mean, they had their own classification. They didn't even qualify to be called a sinner. Sinners and tax collectors. So so think of this situation, what we just read here. Here's this Jewish rabbi who is teaching the people. He is a miracle worker. He is calling people to follow him. And the Pharisees are already kind of starting to not like this guy because they're jealous of him. They notice that he has a lot of authority and he, that he has a lot of power. And so they're becoming very envious of him. They're starting to not like him at all. Now, all of a sudden, this man, this rabbi that they don't like, He was making disciples. He had called the ones that we talked about earlier in chapter 1, but now he is even making a disciple of a tax collector. Even worse than if that wasn't bad enough. And trust me, that was unthinkable. 
But then he went to Matthew's home and he ate with a bunch of them. That was a level of personal acceptance of the people there that Jesus did. That was a level of association with those people that Jesus engaged in that was untenable and even unthinkable for any self-respecting Jew. They'd be like, say it ain't so, Joe. And it was so. Because Jesus did the unthinkable here. And if we understand the culture, we realize what he did there is just amazing. No wonder it was considered scandalous. But not only do we understand the culture, we also need to understand Christ's compassion. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, this is you know, their complaint about why he's eating with the tax collectors and sinners. He says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. All sinners, even <laughs> tax collectors. So, so who are the righteous ones? Who are the ones that he said that he didn't come to call? No one. But Jesus knew the hearts of the self-righteous, and he knew that they thought that they did not need to be saved by him. Since they kept the rules of the Old Testament better than anyone else, they did not think that they had anything to repent of. How sad that they didn't even grasp the reality of their situation. They were just as lost as the the sinners and tax collectors. But because of their failure to realize that, they refused to accept the forgiveness that Jesus offered. Again, from the Pillar New Testament commentary, he writes this, The grace of God extends to and overcomes the worst forms of human depravity. Ironically, in one sense, great sinners stand closer to God than those who think themselves righteous. For sinners are more aware of their need of the transforming grace of God. I doubt that anyone understood that better than Matthew did. He may have been wealthy. I'm sure he was because all tax collectors were. But he was a social and spiritual pariah in every sense of the word. Everyone would have hated him except for other tax collectors. But yet, when Jesus called him, someone who was unthinkable for the Jews to even understand that he would call him, but when Jesus called him to follow him, it says that he he left it all behind and he followed him. I tell you, when I read this, you know, I I, I thought about, we could talk about the call, how we could talk about how Matthew's obedient response was to follow him. But you know, this passage is really not about Matthew. This passage is about Jesus Christ. And when you read it and study it, he is incredible. Just as he was willing, we saw this last week, just as he was willing to be viewed as physically unclean by actually touching a leper, so now we see that he was also willing to be labeled as socially and religiously unclean by associating with sinners and even tax collectors. 
You see, rather than being concerned about his cultural status or what others thought of him, Jesus was concerned about people. Any and all people. I love that. That's who our Savior is. You read these passages, you just can't help but just be amazed at how compassionate, how loving he was and is even now for us today. So, second point is this, a scandalous look ahead. Look at verse 18 with me. Now, John's disciples, talking about John the Baptist, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, think about this with me, fasting. Fasting was done as a means of seeking God's favor, or it was done as an expression of self-humbling repentance, or it was also done as, a, as an expression of grief. Fasting had some real strong spiritual significance in doing it, and that's why John's disciples were engaged in it. Now, the Pharisees is a little bit different. The Pharisees were all about rules and appearances of holiness, and so they actually fasted twice a week. That's how spiritual they were. But the thing is, they weren't doing it in in any response of trying to love God or show their submission to him. They were doing it as an outward appearance to others that they were more spiritual than everyone else. The Old Testament, by the way, required the Jews to fast only one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But here they are. John's disciples are doing it for, for good, legitimate reasons. The Pharisees were doing it as a way of showing themselves to be holier or more special or religious than anyone else. But Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. How come they weren't doing it? I, I think that's a very legitimate question, a very fair question. The people asked about that. Well, let's look at Jesus' answer, picking up in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, you and I read this and we think, well, hey, you know, it's not a big deal. I'm going to a wedding and they're having cake and ice cream. Don't know that I've ever done this, but I could, in theory, skip eating the cake and ice cream. Yeah, I know. Boy, okay, good. A few of you guys are actually with me and awake and stuff. So, okay, the feeble attempts that I go through just to... All right, but this is different. This is not just not walking up to the dessert table. Weddings in Jesus' day, the celebrations lasted several days. It was absolutely unthinkable that a person would fast during a wedding feast because it was a time of joy, a time of excitement, a time of great celebration. Everyone knew that. No one spent those days there fasting. That's not what fasting was about. It wasn't a diet plan. It was about your relationship with God, grief over your sin. No one did that at weddings. What's really interesting to me here, though, is that Jesus' referral to himself as the bridegroom, I think that's pretty obvious there. 
And what, when he's doing that, I think there's great significance to that. It, it brings to mind several Old Testament passages, such as, you don't have to write these down, but Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, Hosea chapter 2, those passages in which God declared himself to be the husband of his people. So if Jesus was not God, when he's referring to himself as the bridegroom, that would have been scandalous. But of course we know it was not scandalous because of the fact that he is God. And we talked about he demonstrated that last week, as we saw, uh, when he, to all of the people there, when he not only healed the paralytic, but when he actually forgave the sins of the man. So while it could have been interpreted as being scandalous that Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom, in other words, he equating himself with God, there's nothing scandalous about it. But this was scandalous. Let me explain what I mean by that. The scandalous part was when the bridegroom would be taken away because what Jesus is doing here is he is pointing to the cross. The scandalous part would be when the perfect, sinless Son of God would die in the most excruciatingly painful and the most publicly humiliating way possible by being stripped and beaten and nailed to a tree. In fact, crucifixion was so scandalous that people didn't even talk about it in public settings. So what Jesus is referring to here, he is pointing to the cross, and that was scandalous, at least to the people there. Now, did anyone know that that he was referring to the cross, that he was pointing to that? I I, I don't think so. I strongly doubt it. He, He made that, with his disciples, he made them aware of that later on. But I do think every time, and I'm reading into this here, but I think I think that every time Jesus thought about and reflected upon the crucifixion that he knew was awaiting him, it had to be sobering. It had to just give him pause. And he knew. He knew that when that happened, when he was crucified, in the most scandalous way possible, that his disciples would fast out of grief and out of sadness. So he's pointing to the cross. But then Jesus does something really interesting. He shares two parables here. Look at verse 21 and 22. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The old the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, logically, I think that both of these make sense. If you, if you sew a patch onto an old garment without first washing that cloth, that patch... Well, when you do wash it, it's going to shrink and it's going to pull away and it's going to tear and make it worse than it was before you even tried to patch it. That makes sense. Likewise, you never put new wine into old wineskins because if you did, you would end up with no wine. Because what they did, of course, they didn't have bottles, they didn't have those things there. What they did is they would put 
they would put wine into skin, animal leather, animal skins, and as the you would always put it into new skins because as the wine would begin to ferment, it would expand, and the old wine skins they were dry and brittle; they would not expand at all. So what would happen then is that as the wine began to ferment, it would it would crack open or burst open the old wine skin, and so you just never put new wine into old wineskins. Everyone would have understood both of these examples really well, and it would have made perfect sense to them. So, hmm, good to know. Thanks, Jesus. Now we understand a little bit more about patching, patching our clothing, and we understand a little bit more about wineskins, even though we don't really use those, but thank you. I suspect, I suspect that maybe there was something more significant going on than just helping us to understand <laughs> about patching clothing and putting wine into wineskin. So what is Jesus talking about here? Why is it so important that he's talking about what we not to combine the old and the new together? I think it's this. Jesus is, just as Jesus was looking forward in time to the scandal of the cross, as we saw in verse 20, I think now Jesus is looking forward in time to the implementation of the new covenant. And we'll talk a lot more about this when we get to Mark chapter 14. And so when he's eating his last meal with the disciples and he talks about this new covenant. So we'll we'll get more into it when we are there. But the way to God was not through rules or regulations, but only through Christ. He was the new not abolishing the Old Testament laws. He wasn't saying that that stuff was irrelevant or it was bad. Not abolishing the Old Testament laws, but fulfilling them. The Old Testament, everything in it had always been pointing towards him. It had been looking forward to him. It had prophesied about him. But now, here he is on earth with his disciples. He is declaring himself to be the bridegroom that was going to be taken away. He is the one who would fulfill all of the requirements that God had that were necessary for our salvation. And I think that's the spiritual lesson of what Jesus is talking about there. He's the, he brings in the new covenant. He is the solution to our problem. Our sin demands that we be punished, separated from God. But Jesus says, Here I am. The cross, it may be scandalous to you guys, but it is an expression of love. The new covenant, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and I am doing that as an expression of love. When I studied these passages, like I said, there's so many things that we could talk about, even more about fasting. We could go into a lot of different possible applications, but the bottom line is this when I study this. It is all about Jesus It is about his love and compassion, a man who would even then call a tax collector, who would even reach out and go to the house of a tax collector and eat, which is really significant in socializing with with sinners and other tax collectors. That's who he was. This man who was here, he was questioned about why his disciples weren't fasting, but Jesus knew his intent, his whole purpose, his whole reason for coming was so that he could go to that cross for you and for me. And I think, how can I just not love my Savior more when I realize, even here, 
He was pointing to the cross. What he did for you and what he did for me and what he did for them and what he's done for all of humanity who is willing to accept his gift of salvation. Most of you know the name John Newton. He, John Newton lived a horrible life. He was a terrible, terrible, sinful man. He was a slave trader until God saved him. And he became a pastor. And he's probably best known for the song that we often sing, Amazing Grace. You see, John never ceased to be amazed at the grace that saved, as he put it, a wretch like me. But I read something recently, something else that John had written, another song actually, and I was really touched by it. I was really moved by it because he reflected upon his life and his conversion. Let me just read it to you. In evil, long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. How can it be Upon a tree, the Savior died for me. My soul is thrilled. My heart is filled to think he died for me. So study this passage. I've been praying about it this past week. My prayer really is threefold. First of all, is that we would better understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Secondly, is that by understanding that better, that we would love him more. I don't know how we can't when we think about what he did for us. And third, that by loving him more, we would live for him and serve him with all of our hearts. His scandalous acts, they were actually the most amazing acts of love that is, we could ever conceive of. As I think about what Jesus did, how can I not love him more? Scandalous? Yeah. Not really. Loving merciful, gracious, saving. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. We are truly in awe of you. And as we look at passages that are familiar, we have read them many times, I pray, though, God, that you would help us to understand even more how dear and precious and miraculous and incredible our Savior is. Jesus, may we know you better. May we love you more. May we serve you more faithfully because that is what you deserve. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.